Uh, I want to say that it's a, it's a great privilege to, to be here with you all today, especially on Resurrection Sunday, uh, out of every, every possible day that, that I could be here. Uh, it's, a, it's a great privilege for, for me to be in this pulpit, which is, has been such a blessing to my own soul. Uh, Emilio has been a, a tremendous help and, 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 and blessing to me. Uh, his teachings, uh, the books he's, he's recommended to me. He's sort of mentored me through all the books that he's, he's recommended uh, in, in, in times past. And uh, I, I just want to say that it's, it's humbling and, uh, and, 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 a, and a great privilege for me to be here. Well, uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are the all-wise, all-glorious, holy, majestic, reigning, powerful God. And oh Lord, us gathered here today as Your people, will our hearts cry that we want to behold You as we sung, Behold our God. That is our prayer, Father, that You would unveil Your very presence to us and cause us, Father, to marvel at the greatness, at the glory, at the depth, at the power of Your presence as revealed through the Gospel. And we pray, Father, that You would help us in this time that Jesus Christ would be magnified, that the risen, glorified Son of God who reigns at Your right hand would be honored, would be esteemed and magnified in the affections of our hearts. That Christ's supremacy and all-sufficiency would be comprehended in a greater fullness in our own minds and hearts, Father. I pray, Lord, that You would help me in my weakness as I seek to set forth Your Word and Your truth in fear and trembling and in great consciousness, Father, of of my inadequacy, I pray that Your blessed Holy Spirit, Father, would, would anoint this Word with power, would grant understanding to Your people, receptive hearts, Father, that You would be glorified, here, in Jesus Christ's name, Amen. Well, I invite you to accompany me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15.22 And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy, pure, inerrant, all-sufficient Word 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. 
Well, this uh, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is the clearest and most complete exposition of the meaning and significance and even theology of the resurrection that we have in, in, in the whole of Scripture. Speaking of Christ's resurrection and of our resurrection together with, with Christ. And this is a glorious theme. I love preaching on the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was on this very day, Resurrection Sunday uh, of the year 2004, just 12 years ago, that the blessed Spirit of God through this truth ushered me into, uh, I guess what can't be described as anything less than a life-impacting, heart-transforming, existential encounter with the risen Christ He permitted me to behold, not with my physical eyes, but through the apprehension of faith. And I, according to the abundant mercy of God, was born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this day is special to me. It's a glorious day. Every day is, is glorious when we're dealing with the truth and gospel of God. But this day is especially glorious to me because this is the day that, by the grace of God, He had mercy on my sin-sick soul. So I, I love this day. I love the resurrection of Christ. I love to proclaim it. And I feel a peculiar affinity to the burden of the Apostle Paul that he lays forth here in this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians as he stresses the importance and significance of the resurrection of Christ. So, I mean, having had this particular truth so impressed upon my mind from the moment of my conversion because it was particularly this truth above everything else that the Spirit of God really used to open my eyes to understand the, the Gospel when He granted me saving faith. Uh, in the light of that, I've often been perplexed at the way that the resurrection of Christ is often neglected. It's often undervalued. It's often omitted. And it's often even re- relegated to a position of relative insignificance in our understanding of the Gospel. And I'm speaking of the evangelical movement at large, and I'm even speaking of the Reformed movement at large. The resurrection of Christ is traditionally not as esteemed, valued, treasured, and loved and emphasized as much as it is in the preaching and theology and teaching and epistles of the Apostle Paul and in the New Testament, and I would say in the whole canon of Scripture altogether. So right at the outset here, I want to emphasize that the resurrection of Christ is integral to the Gospel. It is of the very essence of the gospel itself it is not less important than the cross of christ it is just as important as the cross of jesus christ i think we could even go so far as to say that without the resurrection the cross would not have accomplished anything So here at the beginning of this chapter, as the Apostle Paul begins his transition here in in his 
in, in, in his uh, argumentation in this, this epistle, uh, he transitions to begin to speak of the resurrection of Christ in response to uh, some of the things that were happening and being taught or believed in the church at Corinth. And here in the beginning of the chapter, we, we, we can read what he says. And he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also you stand. So he's, he's relating the gospel here. He's making known the gospel. He had already preached the gospel to them. He had already spent uh, a significant amount of time with them teaching the gospel. And yet again, as he's writing to them, he is stressing the gospel. And he says in verse 2, This is the gospel by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he says that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he talks about the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, which confirmed the validity of it, having it confirmed through a plurality of eyewitnesses. But we see here that the apostle is stressing the gospel. This is nothing less than the gospel itself. And an essential element of the gospel that he sets forth. Something that is, in his words, of first importance not of secondary importance not relegated to a position of relative unimportance but this is of first primary most important out of all the truths that the apostle paul preached and he said that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures so as he's Speaking of the resurrection of Christ here, he's not saying that only the fact that Christ died, according, uh, died for our sins according to the Scripture, that only that is of first importance. But rather what he's saying is that all of it is of first importance because this is the substance. This is the heart. This is the essence of the Gospel itself. Now, I think if we were to survey a, a, a bunch of good old Reformed churchmen and ask them, why is Jesus able to save you to the uttermost? I think most would probably respond along the lines of this. They would say, well, because He suffered and bled for me as an atoning sacrifice to expiate, to erase, to remove all my sin and guilt and his sacrifice on the cross was my perfect substitute because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God in him so he suffered vicariously in my place as my mediator on the cross he bore the full force of God's holy wrath of the curse of the law against 
that, that was against me on behalf of me, on behalf of my sin, and His sacrifice made all-sufficient provision and all-sufficient satisfaction to the justice of God on my behalf. He fulfilled all the demands of the divine law through His preceptive and penal obedience. He fulfilled all righteousness and He bore in His own person on that cross the penalty of the violated law on my behalf, thereby establishing the meritorious foundation and basis for my justification. And I am declared righteous in the sight of God by faith alone, faith in Christ alone, And it's not my faith that saves me, but the righteousness of Christ alone that saves me, that God imputes to me solely through the instrumentality of my faith. And His death on the cross made propitiation for me, having placated and assuaged the holy fury of God that was directed toward me, He satisfied it on my behalf. His death was the ransom price that redeemed me from sin and death and the devil. His blood made reconciliation having removed the holy and just enmity of God against me having made peace through the blood of His cross. His death on the cross was the definitive victory The victory of the Son of God triumphing over the devil and his angels. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. Because through death He destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. He defeated him. He devastated the kingdom of hell. Through His death on the cross, Jesus died to save me. So He's he's able to save me to the uttermost because He bled and He suffered and He died for me and it is finished. And I dare not trust in anything less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So that's that's why he's, He's able to save me. And... You know, of course, all that is true. All that is definitely true. It is most emphatically and gloriously true. But that's not what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25. He he believes all that. He affirms all that. But that's not what he says there in that verse. He says there, consequently, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Because He's alive. Jesus can save me to the uttermost because God rose Him from the dead. And He is alive. And He is always alive. Verse 16 of the same chapter links our salvation to what it calls the quote, power of His indestructible life. So that's why he's able to save completely and forever. Uh, Romans 4 also speaks of this when the Apostle Paul says in the 24th 
verse. Now this was written, uh, verse 23, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, speaking of the righteousness that is imputed to the one who believes, in this case Abraham. But it says, but also for our sake, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. We believe in God, but not just in God in the abstract. We believe in God because God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is entailed here as an essential element of genuine saving faith. And it's even more clear in the 10th chapter in the ninth verse when he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so when we believe and are justified, we're not just believing in the cross of Jesus Christ, we're believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. The resurrection is an essential element of the redeeming work of Christ. Our salvation itself is necessarily bound up in Christ's Resurrection. So the resurrection is not of subordinate importance to the cross as if it only had significance in terms of its subservience to the doctrine of the cross or in terms of its vindication of the veracity and validity of the atonement that was procured by the cross. Because usually it's emphasized in, in that sense, in, in the sense of almost exclusively the resurrection, almost is exclusively emphasized in terms of its apologetic value. The resurrection confirms the cross. The resurrection confirms the claims of Christ. The resurrection confirms that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus is who He said He is, and that everything that Jesus said was true. Now, all that's definitely true, and that's usually how we think of the resurrection, but that's usually most of the extent in which we think of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, the resurrection is subservient to all the rest of the truth of God. It serves other doctrines. It confirms other doctrines. It validates other doctrines. But it usually doesn't factor very prominently into our understanding of salvation itself. And so we skew and diminish the importance of the resurrection of Christ. Now here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying that the resurrection together with the cross is of first importance. It is on equal par with the cross. I, I like to say it like this. The cross perfectly accomplished our salvation, but it's through the resurrection that our salvation was realized and brought into fruition. Christ's resurrection is not just one truth amongst other truths of the Christian faith. The resurrection actually is the capstone of the work of redemption. It is the redemptive historical diadem that crowns Christ as Lord of all and Savior of His people. The resurrection is the climax of redemptive history. The resurrection is the greatest event in the history of the world. And for the Apostle Paul, it's not just one doctrine among other doctrines. The resurrection of Christ is a paradigmatic lens through which he views the whole of redemptive history. 
So it's the governing concept by which the Apostle Paul understands the whole, the whole scope of salvation of the people of God in all of its fullness. And this truth is so glorious. It is so profound uh, that I've definitely failed to explain it correctly even before I've started here. Uh, but we're going to try to summarize something of the, the significance of the resurrection of Christ. And I want to attempt to explain something of its, its importance uh, in terms of the centrality of the resurrection with regard to the accomplishment, realization, and application of our redemption. And then I'll try to tie it all together to explain uh, how it applies to us, if ever so briefly. So let's go back to our text. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now this verse is significant because it provides us with a condensed summary of how the Apostle Paul and how the Spirit of God inspiring the Apostle Paul views the framework of redemptive history as a whole. And understanding this framework is key to comprehending the redemptive significance of Christ's resurrection. Now in the church at Corinth, some were apparently questioning or denying the doctrine of the future bodily resurrection of believers. And so in this verse and in this chapter, uh, the Apostle's purpose here is to make a convincing argument to the Corinthians that proves that every Christian will one day experience a literal bodily resurrection from the dead. Every Christian will be transformed into immortal glory as a consummate manifestation of his or her salvation. And so to make this case, the Apostle sets forth a powerful theological argument. He argues here from the unique significance of Christ's resurrection in the light of the fact that every Christian is understood to be in union with Him in His resurrection. So he says, in Christ, that is, in union with Christ, all shall be made alive. Why? Because Christ rose from the dead as the firstfruits, he calls him. Because his resurrection is unique in terms of its significance with regard to salvation history. And because we are in him, that is, in union with him in his resurrection and in the salvific significance that his resurrection entails. So therefore... All Christians will rise to eternal glory. Now note how in this verse the, the, the Apostle compares and contrasts Christ with Adam. He says, in Adam and then in Christ. And he does this in order to draw out the significance of Christ's resurrection for us. There is a direct conceptual and antithetical parallel here between the death introduced by Adam, by the one, and the life introduced by the other. 
And the reason for this parallel is, is what we call the corporate solidarity of, of the people of God. The corporate solidarity that all people have with these two covenantal heads. So Romans 5.14, for instance, calls Adam a type of Christ. Tupas in the, in, the, in the Greek text there that refers literally to some kind of mold. Uh, it, it, it was used of molds, for instance, in which molten metal would be poured in order to forge things. Adam is a type of Christ. It means he is a, a prophetic prefigurement of Christ. There, there are direct theological prophetic parallels between Adam and Christ in a redemptive historical sense. So Adam is a type of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Christ the last Adam, or as we could perhaps literally translate that, that phrase, the eschatological Adam. So Adam is a type of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. He's what we call the antitype or the ultimate fulfillment of that which the person and office or offices, I guess you could say, of Adam prefigured. So there are direct parallels here. And both are covenant, covenantal or what we call federal heads. So both are representative of a larger group of humanity that is covenantally subsumed under their federal headship. And this is the primary significance, I, I think, of the word in that's found in this text when it says in Adam, in Christ. It refers to the corporate solidarity through covenantal representation by these two figures. And this is the thing that constitutes the utter uniqueness of the resurrection of Christ. It is because Christ is a federal head that His resurrection is different from the resurrections of everybody else that have ever come to pass. So we, we see in Scripture, in both the Old and the, and the New Testaments, we hear of people that were risen from the dead. We think of John chapter 11 in which the Lord raised Lazarus from the dead. Or Acts chapter 9 in which Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Or Acts 20 in which the young man Eutychus that was seated in the window as Paul extended his sermon through the whole night fell asleep and fell to his death and was raised from the dead. But all those resurrections are different. Even though all of them were raised from the dead, the resurrection of Christ is unique because of His unique representative role as the last Adam. As the head of the new humanity. So, I mean, just, just to look at this, this text here, as in Adam all die, so Adam's sin and consequent death that was introduced due to his sin was different from anybody else's. Why was his sin different? Why was the death penalty that was pronounced on him different from everybody else's? 
because he represented what they call his posterity, his, his descendants, all those who descend from him by ordinary generation in what at least the old theologians used to call the covenant of works. The covenant of works. So when Adam transgressed and brought down the penalty of death and judgment upon himself, we transgressed in him and we died in him. His sin is our sin. His death is our death. And so his sin is imputed to us and we incur the condemnation of the imputed guilt that culminates in death because of our covenantal union with Him. And so that's why our text says, in Adam all die. But the same concept applies to Christ and all those in union with Him. Because in Christ all live, all shall be made alive. Christ Himself was born under the law, Galatians 4.4. Christ Himself rendered perfect and persevering obedience to all of the requirements of the law of God. And He established righteousness in the place where Adam's unrighteousness once reigned. And He did it on behalf of those whose nature He assumed upon Himself in order to mediate for them to live and to die in their place. So Christ obeyed where Adam disobeyed. And He persevered in that obedience. And He attained to the reward of life, of immortality and glorification. What we call eschatological life. And He did it on behalf of His people. So just as Adam's death was not His own, but was that of all those in union with Him, the same is true of Christ's life of His eschatological life as the reward of His perfect Adamic obedience. His reception of this glorified life was not just His own, but was that of all those in union with Him. So in Christ all shall be made alive. Now the word all here in this text is important. There are two alls that are here uh, qualified by the previous ins. And it's important that, that we don't miss that here. It's in Adam that the all dies. So the all here refers to all those in union with Adam, which happens to be the whole of the, of the human race. Christ alone accepted. And it's also in Christ that the all shall be made alive. So the second all in this verse refers, well, not, not to all people everywhere as a universalist would probably pretend to assume, but the, the all here is qualified by the previous in. It refers solely to those in union with Christ Himself. A union effected by the sovereign decree of God that finds its expression in this covenantal representation here uh, that Paul's alluding to. So this is the basic framework that Paul has in mind here in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's really a summary statement that lays bare and exposes his understanding of the structure of redemptive history as a whole. This verse summarizes God's dealings with the world. There are two federal heads and 
all of humanity is contained in and subsumed under the vicarious representation of these two federal heads. <clears throat> so, Paul here is thinking in, in, in parad- paradigmatically, I, I guess we could say, in terms of what we see summarized in this verse. This, this is the lens through which he, he, he views all of God's dealings with us. Every person is in union with one or the other. So, I'm, I'm there, you're there, we're all there, we're all right here in this text. In union with one or the other. And so what Paul is saying here is that Christ's resurrection is unique and that it is a unique, redemptive, historical event and with which all Christians are in union. And then the fact that He rose from the dead means that every Christian will be redeemed from death through bodily resurrection and glorification just as Christ Himself was redeemed through, from death through bodily resurrection and, and glorification. So, in other words, just as Adam's sin and death is our sin and death, Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. Christ's life is our life. All the fullness with which He was endowed with regard to His Adamic perfection as the reward of His obedience is now ours and we become partakers of it by virtue of our union with Him. And there are huge implications of these truths as we consider this text in the light of its wider biblical and redemptive historical context. Uh, In in the first place, there are significant redemptive historical implications of Adam's death introducing sin. Of his sin that introduced death. In Adam, all die. I mean, he just summarizes it that way. In Adam, all die. It's a small statement with huge implications. Not only has individual implications for each and every one of us, but it has cosmic implications for the whole created order. And what I mean by this is that the sin of Adam not only ruined individual human souls, it rocked havoc on the created order. It devastated the world. And we see this brought out in other texts like Romans 5, verse 12, where he says, just as sin came into the world, into the cosmos, through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned how? All sinned when? All sinned in Adam. All were constituted transgressors and guilty in Him. Sin was introduced into the cosmos, into the created order through, through Adam. In Romans 8, it becomes even more clear when he says in verse 20, Romans, Romans 8, when he's speaking of how the whole of the creation has been subjected to the results of the curse that were introduced by the sin of Adam. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It says, Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And so he's saying that the creation, the created order, the earth, the world, it was all brought under the consequences of the sin of Adam, subjected to vanity, subjected to futility. It was all made for the glory of God, and, and, and it does exhibit the glory of God, but that has been frustrated due to the introduction of sin of the sin of Adam, God made him his vice regent as the image of God to reign and rule on the earth, reflecting God, representing God, executing God's will in the earth. He put all things under his dominion, under, under his feet, and yet Adam sinned. And Adam rebelled against his king. And Adam voluntarily handed that over to the serpent who sought to usurp that dominion that, that Adam had. And so there were catastrophic consequences that were reaped upon the, the, the world through this. There was ruin. There was destruction. There was bondage. There was vanity. And it all came to dominate the first creation that was under and is under Adam's federal headship. Death came to all, even to the cosmos, the, the cosmos and to the world as a whole. And so... When our text says, in Adam all die, though it's referring to people specifically, there are broader implications of this statement that include the, the whole created order. So this original creation is what the Scriptures refer to as this age or this world. It speaks of Satan is the God of this age or the God of this world who is currently dominating. It is this present aeon this present order of this world that's dominated by sin and death and futility and even by the devil himself. So those are the, the implications of Adam's death-introducing sin. But there are also some huge implications with regard to Christ's life-introducing resurrection. In Christ, all shall be made alive. The implications of the resurrection of Christ are also huge because it not only has to do with our individual salvation, but it also has cosmic implications. Christ redeems not only His people, but the created order as a whole. His resurrection means not only new life for His people, but new life for the cosmos. His resurrection, according to the Apostle Paul, inaugurates the new creation. It inaugurates what the Scriptures refer to as the age to come. 
So this age is characterized by sin and vanity and futility and death and corruption and all of that. But the age to come, the age of redemption, the age of salvation, the age of the blessing and fullness of God, the age of the outpouring of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and life from the dead, that age to come has been introduced has been inaugurated, has dawned in Christ's renovated resurrection body when God raised Him up, having loosed the pains of death. So this is what Paul's referring to in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians when he calls Christ the firstfruits. In verse 20, he says, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at His coming. So Christ is the firstfruits. We see this affirmed before our verse and after our verse here twice as if this is something that the Apostle is seeking to emphasize here. Now this terminology actually comes from the Old Testament itself and it has cultic significance with regard to being a part of the whole Mosaic administration and the Levitical worship that would take place under that. The first fruits, the offering of the first fruits would be when an Israelite would grow a crop within the boundaries of the promised land and he would get the first bumper crop, so to speak, or the, the first initial part of that harvest, and he would gather that together and offer it to the Lord uh, as an offering, thereby signifying, uh, God, I recognize that you provided this. This comes from your hand. And it was a token that had symbolic meaning that represented the harvest as a whole. And so what the Israelite was saying when he offered the first fruits was not just that, God, you provided this initial sum of my harvest, so I want to give it to you. But what he's saying is all the, this represents all the harvest that you gave me. And I recognize you are the provider, you are the sustainer, you are the sovereign Lord, and it all belongs to you. And I'm just offering this as a, as a small token to signify as much. And so the portion of the harvest that was offered as the first fruit fruits represented not one harvest later only to have a separate harvest, but it represented that one harvest. It was a part of that one harvest. It had organic unity to that one harvest. And Paul's point here is that the Resurrection of Christ is in organic unity with the final resurrection of the saints. The saints will be raised from the dead in what we call the eschaton, the last day, and the climactic day of the second coming of Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is that the final resurrection, the resurrection of the eschaton, has already happened in a sense. It's already dawned in the resurrection of Christ 
Himself. And so, therefore, the final resurrection of the saints at the end of the age in the second coming of Christ is not a different resurrection harvest from the resurrection of Christ Himself, but it's one and the same resurrection. They are not two separate, divided, and unrelated resurrections. They are one and the same resurrection. So our resurrection is an integral part of the resurrection of Christ Himself. It is in Christ that we all rise to live. Yet if we think about this, that, that final resurrection, as, as the prophets foretold, even Isaiah and, and other passages of Scripture, will not happen until the age to come dawns. Until the eschaton. But since Christ has already been raised from the dead, and He is the firstfruits of that, that means that the age to come, the, this, this glorious age characterized by redemptive fullness and salvation and blessing and all that that we mentioned, has already been inaugurated, not consummated, but inaugurated. It is been brought into reality, but it is not yet manifested itself in its entire fullness. And that is Paul's argument here. There is a necessary organic unity between the resurrection of Christ and that of saints. And so what all this means is that the resurrection of Christ Himself entails what some have called the cosmic intrusion of the age to come into the present created order. Christ is the last Adam, did what undid what Adam did, and He fulfilled what Adam failed to fulfill, and thereby brought about the new creation of the final resurrection in His own person. So it's as if that final resurrection has already been introduced retroactively from the future into the past so that the kingdom of God with its redemptive fullness and its power has now become a reality through Christ Himself. So what this, what this means here is that there, we're, we're stuck in a kind of overlap of the ages. We're still in the present created order, and yet the new creation has dawned at the same time. This, this is what we call inaugurated eschatology of redemptive fulfillment. Our redemption is perfectly accomplished. Our redemption is perfectly accomplished. But in terms of its full manifestation and realization, it has not yet been fully perfected and realized. It's, it's inaugurated but not consummated. That's, that's what we mean by that. Some have, have said it's already and not yet at the same time. There's a sense in which it's already. There's a sense in which it's not yet. I am risen from the dead already! It happened 12 years ago on Resurrection Sunday when God infused life, spiritual and glorious life into my dead, stony heart. 
And yet I'm not, risen, I'm not yet risen from the dead. I am awaiting the resurrection of the dead. I am groaning and eagerly awaiting the redemption of my body. And so it's already and it's not yet. 2 Corinthians 5.17 A text that all of us know really well and that many of us just tend to pass over without comprehending something of its significance. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The old aeon has passed away. The old created order under the death and ruin and destruction and vanity of the consequences of Adam's sin is passing away. It has been definitively judged and and legally brought an end to through the redemptive work of Christ and the new creation has dawned. And so, if we are in Christ, we are new creations in Christ, not just because of Christ, but in Christ. So it's in Christ that all shall be made alive according to our text, speaking of the future bodily resurrection of believers, but it's in Christ according to this text that we have been made alive. We are new creations. And so Christ, when He rose from the dead, He received a new, resurrected, uh, immortalized body. He experienced in terms of His humanity the new creation. We experience the new creation in union with Him in His resurrection. So we partake of the power of the age to come in union with Him. And that's the redemptive significance redemptive, historical, cosmic significance, whatever you want to call it, of of Christ's resurrection. And it's important because this concept of inaugurated eschatology governs New Testament thought as a whole. Uh, The Apostle Paul calls it in Ephesians the mystery that has been revealed in the third chapter. In the first chapter of Ephesians, in verses 9 and 10, he says, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is part of the mystery God has been working. God had decreed in eternity past. God is providentially bringing all things to pass. God decreed and orchestrated and brought into accomplishment and into fulfillment the redemptive work of Christ in order to unite all things in Him. And it's because Christ as the last Adam has redeemed the created order as a whole that everything in the created order will be summed up in Christ to unite all things under Christ. This is paradigmatic. This is revolutionary. This is, this is earth-shaking in its significance. Because when you really understand that all of human history centers on Christ and that it all reaches its climactic focal point 
and his glorious resurrection, it can, it can really change your perspective of the world. It's foundational to our worldview. It's foundational to our apologetics. It's foundational to our theology. It's foundational to our proclamation of the gospel itself. This, this actually becomes uh, what we call a hermeneutical or an interpretive lens that opens up a radically Christ-centered way of viewing not only all of human history and not only all of salvation history, but all of Scripture itself. It all has to do with Christ. All of it. The risen, triumphant, glorified Son of the living God in whom all fullness dwells is the sum and substance of the Gospel. He is the sum and substance of the purpose for which all of human history has transpired. That's its redemptive historical significance. But that brings us to the question, well then, what is its particular redemptive or salvific significance for us personally? And I think we we can answer that like this. All of the salvific life that we receive, all of the redemptive reversal of the sin and death that were introduced by Adam that we partake of, we receive it and partake of it solely through union with Him. We don't just receive it from Him. He doesn't just give it to us. We receive it in union with Him. In Christ, we shall be made alive. And in Christ, we are made alive. And in Christ, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. And in Christ, we are adopted as sons of God. And in Christ, we are made to be saints of the living God. Romans 5, verse 10 alludes to this when he says, if we were reconciled, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. With as good and literal as the NASB is, is a translation of the Bible, they, they really missed it here because they're not translating it literally. That little word by is in. In the Greek text, we shall be saved not just by His life, but in His life. This is what Paul alludes to in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when he says, Christ, who not only has your life, who not only gives you life, he says, Christ, who is your life. All of the salvation benefits we receive, we obtain by our union with Christ because the Father makes us partakers with Him of the fullness with which He has been endowed as the one who has risen from the grave. So from His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace, John 1.16 says, because it's from His fullness that we are experiencing this glorious, glorious salvation that, that God has given us. So first, 1 Peter 1.3 
speaks of how we, according to the mercy of God, are, are, are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are raised together in Christ and with Christ. Colossians 3.1 You were raised with Christ. And so we are regenerated, born again, and saved only by our union with the living Christ. We're not just believing in a dead Christ. We're not just believing that He did in fact die on the cross. We are embracing the living Christ by faith. The One who has in His resurrected, glorified, immortalized, bodily, uh, spirit-endowed fullness all the saving efficacy and power and merit by which we are saved. And so therefore, we're not only born again in union with Christ, but we're also justified together with Christ and, and in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, speaking of the significance of Christ's resurrection, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit. The word translated vindicated there is the exact same Greek word that the Apostle uses everywhere else to say justified. Literally, he's saying Christ was justified in the Spirit. There is an antithetical parallelism that's taken place here in this verse over the, the series of the lines that it contains. Three, three times it does it. But in the first one, He was revealed in the flesh. His incarnation. The inception of His revelation to humanity and His earthly mission. But when He says was vindicated or justified in the Spirit, He's referring to His resurrection from the dead as the culmination of His redemptive Work. He was declared to be the Son of God in power and the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection from the dead. And this is significant in terms of what Christ's resurrection means for us because first and foremost, it's telling us about what it means for Him. When Christ as the sinless substitute had obeyed in our place and went to the cross and bore the imputation of the sin of all His people, He passed under the penal sanction of the violated law, the curse, the wrath of God, he, though he was innocent, was constituted guilty. Even though he had no sin, our sin was, was accounted to him in such a way that he himself was counted to be guilty for our sin. And that's why he died. The wages of sin is death. Christ had no sin. And so there Therefore, he didn't deserve to die, but he died because not because of his own sin, but because he was bearing the legal, the forensic, the imputed guilt of our sin. And yet, while he remains dead, 
and in the grave, he's still under the penal sanction, in a sense, of the violated law. He's still dead. Redemption has not been realized yet. And so God raises him from the dead. And when God raises him from the dead, he's declaring that he not only was sinless and perfectly just, but also that he perfectly satisfied the justice of God on our behalf when he died for our sin on the cross. And so the resurrection was Christ's own justification. Not his justification in the sense of being forgiven of his sin and imputed with an alien righteousness because he had no sin of his own and his righteousness was his own. So his justification is not just like our justification. And our justification, we as sinners are forgiven and declared to be righteous. And his justification, he was justified on the basis of his own righteousness. But he was justified his resurrection was God the Father declaring Him to be righteous. And so we go to Romans 4.25 where Paul makes this peculiar statement. He says He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And that is a good literal translation there. He was raised on account of our justification. You say, well, how is that the case? I, I, I think it's the case in this sense. His resurrection was His own justification. And we received the imputation of His righteousness, not in an abstract sense, not in the sense that God just takes it and gives it to us, but we received that by our union with him. It's 1 Corinthians 1 30, verse 30 says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. So we are in Christ Jesus. He is our righteousness and fulfillment of what Jeremiah prophesied when he talks of the branch it was to come who would be called the Lord our righteousness. So we are justified. Our justification was perfectly accomplished at the cross. It was perfectly established on the cross. But our justification was realized in the resurrection of Christ because His resurrection entails His own declaration of righteousness. And we are declared to be righteous by virtue of our union with Him. The cross, we could say, was... Christ's vindication of the righteousness of God. But the resurrection was God the Father's vindication of the righteousness of Christ. And it was His vindication of the righteousness by which we are justified in, in union with Him. So we are resurrected together with and in Christ. We are justified together with and in Christ. We are also sanctified together with and in Christ according to the implications of what Paul sets forth in Romans 6, verses 10-11, to what he says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin. It's a definitive 
break with the reigning power and dominion of sin. It's what we call definitive sanctification because it definitively happens in the moment of our conversion and is instantaneous in that sense. We have died to sin together with Christ. Now when Christ was was suffering the wrath of God on the cross, and when Christ died, there was a sense in which He was under the reigning and tyrannizing power of sin. Now He had and He was not contaminated with sin. He, he, he was by no means sinful in His nature. Sin was not infused into Him. But He did come under the reigning power of sin in that sense, in, in a sense, and... He died. And when He died, He died to sin. And when He rose, He rose to live for God in the newness of life, now definitively sanctified, if we can use that terminology, not in the sense of being made holy, but in the sense of being absolutely perfected in immutable holiness. Because in His humanity, He was tempted, but now as the resurrected, glorified Son of God, He is tempted no more. He is set apart from sin forever. And we in Him. So Paul's alluding to the resurrection of Christ. He died to sin. The death He died, He died to sin once. Once and for all. It is definitive. It is complete. It is perfect. It is forever. So therefore, you, if you're truly in Him, cannot, will not, dare not, Live in the continual, habitual, perpetual practice of sin. It is contrary to your true identity in Christ. It is not who you are. He's reminding us of who we are. And to know who we are, we need to look to Him and consider who He is as the risen, triumphant, holy, victorious Son of the living God. So we're regenerated in Him. We are justified in Him. We are sanctified in Him. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. Paul summarizes it in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Brethren, what do we have to boast of? If Christ is all sufficient and if He has made everything to us, our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but it is all in Him. And we have of His fullness, of His righteousness, of this glory, of the new creation that is dawned in His very person when God rose Him from the dead. He, He's everything we need. He's everything we want. He's everything we long for. He is the perfect satisfaction not only to the justice of the law of God. He is the perfect satisfaction of everything that our hearts could possibly long for. Christ and Christ alone, and He is everything. So how dare we boast in ourselves? How dare we boast in our works when Christ is our justification? How dare we boast in our own righteousness when Christ is our sanctification? How dare we boast in our own receptivity to the things of God if Christ is our resurrected and regenerated life? 
through whom and only through whom we live to God. We have been raised with Him. We will be raised with Him. We have been justified with Him. And so therefore, the past certain reality of our justification that we received in union with Christ absolutely guarantees the future full fruition and realization of our justification when we stand before the great white throne of the judgment bar of the holy God with boldness and confidence that as He is, so are we in this world in Him. And so will we be there clothed in the robes of His righteousness. Our past justification guarantees our future full realized justification in the eschaton. Our past definitive sanctification in Christ guarantees and establishes the absolute certain basis for the continuing ongoing progress of our sanctification and the full final realization of the same when He is revealed in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory and redeems us from the presence of sin forever. It guarantees that He who began a good work in us will continue to perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus. It guarantees that the God of peace will sanctify us wholly and that our whole body and soul and spirit will be perfected in holiness at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because we've already been sanctified in Him and the dawning of the glorious redemptive reality of our sanctification that we've already experienced absolutely guarantees the certainty of its perfection in the eschaton. And to go back to the argument of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, the fact that Christ rose from the dead is the first fruits and that we have been born again, have been raised to new life, to glorious new life in Him spiritually. Raised from the deadness of sins. We were dead in trespasses and sins and we were made alive together with Christ. That past fact of what we've already experienced of our salvation guarantees the full and final realization, culmination, fruition, and consummation of that very reality when Christ our Lord comes back again because we will be raised. That's what the resurrection means. It means that all things are being made new, that that has been inaugurated and it will be consummated. It means that our salvation is sure, it is certain, it is infallibly bound up in the resurrected life of the glorified Son of God Himself. So that if He lives, it is impossible for us to finally die and perish. If He is righteous, it is impossible for us, once we are declared to be righteous, to come under the sentence of condemnation. If He is holy, it is impossible for us to abort in our sanctification 
if we are truly in Him and truly born again by the Spirit of God. Now in conclusion here, I just want to pull out a few practical applications of this reality that we can see uh, for example in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, the Apostle prays that the saints would know, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Well, what is this power? It says, in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. The greatness of the power that works in us is the very same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. That is amazing. And that's what Paul is praying that the eyes of the saints would be opened in order to understand all of the glorious truth and fullness and all the implications of this, of this reality. God infuses supernatural life and power into us. The very same Spirit of life and power that rose Christ from the dead is living in us. He is communicating that power to us. So the Christian life, it's not natural. It is supernatural. It is miraculous. I mean, just to clarify here, when I speak of the communication of resurrection power to us, I'm not speaking of the communication of physical power to your mortal frame here and now so as to convey to you some kind of superhuman abilities. I mean, the, the resurrection power of Christ working in you doesn't make you the incredible Hulk or Hulk Hogan for that matter, and it doesn't turn you into an apostle with power to raise the dead. That's, that's not what it does what it does is it sanctifies you. It is a communication of the power of sanctifying grace that chiefly transforms the affections of your heart so as to mold you inwardly to the image of Christ and all righteousness and true holiness in such a way that you delight in doing the will of God from the heart and you, you do it in faith and love for God and love for your neighbor. And you do it with a view to the glory of God. With God-honoring, Spirit-sanctified motives that are impossible apart from this supernatural power. This is a power by which you conquer inbred sin. This is a power that works effectively in every saint of the living God and is demonstrated in practical ways in their lives. So if we move forward to Ephesians 5.25, when Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, commands with all the authority of heaven itself that husbands are to love their wives, the structure of Ephesians is set forth according to what some call the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is the in Christ reality, our true identity in Christ, the gospel realities that are operating in our life by faith union with Christ. And then the, the imperative is the 
commandment that entails our duty. It is the exposition of the law that is brought forth to bear on the responsibility and duty of the people of God. So we can obey the imperative and put into practice the will of God only by virtue of the indicative in Christ reality. And that's what we see here. In chapter 1, he's speaking of the indicative. The resurrection power of Christ is operating within us. Therefore, imperative, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So what this means is that the power by which husbands are to love their wives is found only in Christ. But it also means that they are enabled to do this through His resurrection power that is surging through their souls with capacitating grace so that they're able to lead their wives, to provide for their wives, to instruct their wife, to shepherd them, to give themselves for them, to lay down their lives for them as Christ laid down His life for the church, to enjoy intimacy with them and, and make them feel like they're the objects of a love that's not of this world. By the power of His resurrection. We can only be faithful husbands by the power of His resurrection. And what this also means is that when, when he says in verse 22 here, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. What this means is that what is impossible in the power of the flesh is now supernaturally made possible by the impulsion of an inward principle of resurrection power that infuses the heart with divine grace so that the woman can render heartfelt internal submission to her husband with joy and delight rather than yielding merely an external conformity and begrudging conformity at that to his command and leadership. What this means is when it talks to children and parents that children can obey their parents the children, if the children are in the Lord by the supernatural power that God has made to dwell within them Fathers, he says in chapter 6, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord that parents now can raise their children not according to the principles of this world, but can raise them in the word and will of God through the power of the age to come that is supernaturally enabling them to do that. So parents can love their children. They can teach their children. They can spank their children. They can, they can change diapers and clean up vomit. Now in the power of Christ's resurrection, now knowing that it's the will of God and delighting in the will of God in doing so, doing it as a work of faith that glorifies and honors God through responsible parenting. Or when it says in chapter 5, verse 3, speaking of immorality not, or impurity, let it not be named among you as is proper among saints that this is now possible through the power of the age to come that's dawned in Christ that we've received. So the young man that's struggling with internet pornography, for instance, 
but says he can't break the chains of its addictive force. It is too alluring. He goes back to the, to the same again and again. He continues to fall. Now, I want to ask you something, if, if that's the case with you. You have the power of another world living inside of you. The power that snaps the jaws of death. The power that conquers Satan and hell. The power that renovates the whole created order. The power that introduces a new heavens and a new earth into the order of things. And you can't even say no to a configuration of high resolution pixels that convey the illusion of a naked woman on a monitor in front of your face. This power can raise Jesus from the dead and millions of saints from the dead, but it can't enable you to hit the off button or not to click on that link. Really? It's sufficient to conquer all the hosts of hell, and yet it, it can't even give you enough, conquer, uh, en uh, enough power to conquer your hormones or the appetites of your body. Oh, open your eyes and behold the glory of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You struggle so much and fall so much because you're largely ignorant of the mighty power that God has made to dwell within us. And you're ignorant of it perhaps because you've never known it in the first place. Perhaps you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. Perhaps you need to repent and believe in the Gospel and receive this salvation. Or perhaps you are indeed a true saint of the living God that is struggling with some besetting sin. But if that's the case, I tell you, open your eyes and behold your identity in Christ. There is sufficient power. There is enough sufficiency there. There is enough grace and efficacy and fullness of the Spirit of God there so as to snap the chains of that besetting sin so as to mold the affections of your heart so that you look upon it with disgust. There is. There's power. This is supernatural. And perhaps you haven't known it because you're negligent and slothful in the means of grace. How is this power mediated to us? Through the Holy Spirit of God. And how does the Holy Spirit of God mediate this power to us? He does it through the means of grace and primarily through the Word and prayer. The Word and prayer. Paul says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That was the Apostle Paul's cry because he knew what the power of His resurrection entails. There is a power. There is a glory. There is a, a fullness there that he knew he wanted. That he knew he needed. That he knew he had experienced in a greater measure than any of us. And yet he still longed for more. He said, I forget all that. All that's dung. I just want to know the power of His of His." resurrection and that's that should be that must needs be the cry of the Christian life oh that I may know Christ oh that I may draw close to Christ 
Oh, that I may know not just some intellectual Christ that somebody explained to me, but that I may know Him personally, that I may experience His power in my own heart, that I may know the reality of these things in my own being and the depths of my own soul. That is the cry of the true Christian life. The Bible is full of imperatives. But we can only fulfill our God-given vocation to be faithful parents, faithful husbands, faithful wives, faithful children, faithful employees, faithful Christians by the power of His resurrection. Ephesians 6.10 says finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength or power of His might. That's my exhortation to you. Let's pray. Blessed Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, for this glorious day which we're meditating and dwelling upon the resurrection of our Lord. So glorious, so profound, Father. I pray that You would have mercy on, on whoever is present here that doesn't know You, Father. That You would shake them. That You would convince their conscience of their guilt in Your sight and also reveal to them and convince them of the glorious sufficiency of salvation that you have made for us in Christ. And I pray, Father, for, for, for your people in this, in this congregation, Father, that you would encourage their hearts, Father, that, that they would know more and more of this reality and power in their own lives, in our own lives, Father, we pray that your blessing and peace would be in this place and would go with everyone. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.